we get a chance to look at some of the Psalms this summer. We'll begin in Psalm chapter 4. I'll explain what we're doing after we read the passage. But let me ask you, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word from Psalm chapter 4. This is Psalm 4. This is the Word of God. This is to the choir master with stringed instruments, a Psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Would you please be seated and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for the Psalms and we thank you that you have revealed yourself through this poetry. And Lord God, we are thankful for every way in which you've revealed yourself, sometimes through historical books, sometimes through narrative books, and sometimes through the beauty and the splendor of poetry. We ask, Lord God, that in the coming weeks as we look together at your Psalms, that this would be more than an academic exercise, more than a growing in knowledge, even more than growing in wisdom. We pray, Lord, that you would give us more wisdom but our wisdom would ultimately lead us to worship. So we ask, Lord God, that you would be worshipped today through the thoughts and the prayers and the words and the proclamation of your word and the celebrating of the Lord's Supper. We ask that you would be worshipped in all of this. For you are the Lord God who deserves our worship. We thank you. And we praise you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we ask all of this. Amen. Well, in the coming weeks, let's say over the next 12 weeks, we're going to kind of meander through the Psalms. And I say meander because we're not going to be talking about all the Psalms. There's no way we could talk about all the Psalms in 12 weeks. We're not even going to be hitting the majority of the psalms, we will talk about 12 individual psalms over the next 12 weeks. You'll get kind of a, a, a smorgasbord or a selection of various types of psalms, and, and we're going to do that as a way of kind of transitioning us from Revelation to Romans. You can see how the psalms are very different than either of those books, and for good reason, in a very helpful way. And I, I think over the next 12 weeks, this is going to be very encouraging and uplifting for us. It will help us to think about Christian living and the characteristics of God as we look at 
various psalms over the next 12 weeks. So to introduce that, let me tell you, I think, some of the unique characteristics of the psalms that will help us to establish a way to read the psalms that will ultimately be profitable to us. Here's a few of the unique characteristics of the psalms. First of all, all of them come out of personal experiences, okay? Each one of the psalms is written by a particular person, many of them written by David, various other psalms written by various other people, but every psalm is born out of or it finds its existence out of a particular circumstance. None of these are sort of dropped out of heaven, out of the blue, without any background or, or foreknowledge. These psalms are born out of various circumstances, and those circumstances largely will inform our understanding of the psalms. So that's the first thing that makes the psalms unique. The second thing is we know from the beginning that the psalms are designed for liturgical purposes, okay? And what I mean by that is that these these psalms are uniquely crafted by God for the congregation of believers. Psalm 1 through 150, they are made for us, the church as a whole, to be able to sing and to read and to praise God together. And so though they're born out of personal circumstances, they're not primarily designed for personal uh, circumstances. They're designed for the congregation as a whole. That will inform our understanding of the Psalms. Third point, very important as we look at the Psalms, the Psalms, each of them have a sort of a, a standalone feature. It's not as if you read from Psalm 1 to 150 and you get a building narrative and you say, oh man, I, I missed Psalm 11 last week. I don't know if I'm going to understand Psalm 12, okay? It's not the characteristics of, of the book of Psalms. Each of them stands alone. Each of them can be read on their own. It's really almost the only book of the Bible where you can do the good old-fashioned close your eyes and point to a chapter and go ahead and read that chapter, and it will make sense, okay? Because that's the design of the Psalms. You ought not do that with the other books of the Bible, okay? But the Psalms are unique in that way, and so for that reason, we can pick up a Psalm and we can read it, and we can find in every Psalm, if we kind of pull away and get to the bottom of the Psalm, we will find some characteristic of God that is being elevated to us. It's being lifted up by the psalmist. And, and the psalmist saying, here, look, this is, this is something about God that's worthy of worship and praise. Okay, so that's a characteristic of the Psalms, of the Psalms. Now, take, taking all that together, here's what we get. We get a, a uniquely practical book of the Bible that is easy to access for us, that we can enter into and leave from at almost the, the drop of a hat. We can pick up any Psalm, we can enter into it, and we can find the characteristics of God that meet us where we are and speak into the very circumstances of our lives, no matter what's happening in our own lives. So here's, here's the, the paradigm that I hope to use anytime I'm preaching on the Psalms this summer. I think this is a very fitting template for understanding the Psalms. This is how I read the Psalms, okay? When we experience, you know, fill in the blank, when we experience, fill in the blank, Psalm, whatever the Psalm you're reading, reminds us that God, and then fill in the blank, okay? And it may be a characteristic of God. It may be something that God has done. It may be something that God has written or said about himself. But when we experience something, this psalm tells us something about God. And you know the beautiful thing about that? Every psalm says something about God, and every psalm is born out of personal experience, which means it's going to meet us where we are. It's designed for the congregation. So the psalms are an intersection of the characteristics of God where they intersect with the experience of my life. 
okay? And every psalm in some way will do that. When I experience joy, you know, Psalm 79 tells me about the, the joy of the Lord, okay? We will see the intersection of those two things in every psalm. So that's how we will read most of the psalms. Now let me tell you then Psalm 4 this morning. This is what we're going to see. When we experience wrongdoing, and I know in your, the bulletin insert I said uh, false accusations. I'm going to go more broad and we'll just go with wrongdoing for now. When we experience wrongdoing, Psalm 4 reminds us that God hears and God answers, okay? And you're, you're going to see, as we look through the psalm, you're going to see why this is important. Now, first of all, I, I mentioned to you this. Each psalm is born out of a particular circumstance. As you read Psalm 4, did you get the feeling for what is the circumstance for which David writes Psalm 4? As you're reading it, did you get the idea of what's going on in David's life? Let me tell you, if you're looking for it, you can look right at verse 2, okay? Verse 2, I'm just going to write it down. Verse 2 gives us an indication of the circumstances that David is facing in his life at this moment. He says in verse 2 this, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Okay? Right reading of Psalm 4 sees in the life of David at this moment that he is experiencing the false accusations of those around him. Okay? How long will you love worthlessness? How long will you seek after lies? Um, I have been turned into shame, he says in verse 1. How long will my honor be turned into shame? David is experiencing a situation where the people around him are uh, perpetrating wrongdoing against him by accusing him of things that he's not guilty of. And we don't know whether this is early in David's life or, or later in David's life. No one knows. You could imagine, you, if you know the life of David, you could imagine a variety of circumstances where you say, oh, that Psalm 4 might fit right here. And it could. It could be early. It could be late. Okay? David experienced this a lot in his life. But this is the, the, this is the circumstance into which Psalm 4 is delivered. And I, and I know you can resonate with this feeling. You have experienced wrongdoing against yourselves in a variety of ways. From, from children all the way up through grown-ups, okay? I mean, children have experienced false accusation. I know you have. You've, you've seen it on the playground. You've seen gossip and the damage that it can done. You, you see this in bullying. This is the very nature of bullying. It's, it's trying to uh, subdue or subvert to belittle someone else by destroying their character and, and that then makes the perpetrator feel better, doesn't it? It elevates their status. And children, uh, believe it or not, this doesn't go away when you grow up, okay? Uh, Grown-ups experience this in a variety of ways. You experience this in the, the break room, right, over lunch conversations at work. This is what happens in a variety of workplaces when people are kind of jockeying for position and wanting to be promoted. And so we find that one of the ways to be promoted in work is not only to make ourselves look good, but also to make others look not as good as us, right? And so gossip and slander and false accusation and wrongdoing, this happens in families. Unfortunately, it happens a lot, okay? There are a variety of ways in which we can resonate with David as he writes Psalm chapter 4. Therefore, what we're looking at this morning then is I would call this a roadmap a roadmap for how we deal with wrongdoing, okay? 
This is a roadmap for the church on how to deal with wrongdoing. All right, and um, if your children are wondering what's a roadmap, I was thinking as I wrote this, a roadmap, before your fo- when, you, when you get in your car now and your, your phone says, you're in your car and you're probably heading to this place and it's like 14 miles away and here's the traffic. Before that, okay, we had maps and we'd pull them out and we'd find point A and point B and, uh, and you would follow the map. Okay, Psalm 4 is a roadmap for how we deal with wrongdoing. It is a psalm given to the church to answer the question, what do I do when it feels like people are against me and they're intentionally against me, that they're sinning against me? How do I handle that? Okay? Three observations, really quick, three observations that we make from this psalm. First of all, David calls on God and he asks him to respond. Okay? And you'll see this in the, in the insert in the bulletin. David calls upon God and he asks him to respond. Look at verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Now think about this. David has just said that his honor has been turned into shame, that those who are against him are pursuing worthlessness and lies, and yet it's very easy to be consumed with that, but he doesn't start there. Okay, he begins by calling out to the living God, answer me, oh my God, answer me. Be gracious to me and hear my plea. Now think about this. First of all, verse 1, the very beginning of verse 1, answer me. If you read it like, man, that's bold and courageous, almost feels a little abrasive, you are right, okay? David is saying to God, God, you will answer me, okay? You must answer me. I truly believe that when I say this, you will respond to me. God, respond to me, okay? It's bold. It's courageous. And the reason it's bold and courageous is is it is predicated upon the two phrases that follow after it, okay? So David says, God, answer me. You will answer me. And then what does he say? Oh, God of my righteousness. That's the first thing it's predicated upon. David approaches God, and he doesn't approach him with any pretense or any sort of false understanding of his worthiness. He doesn't say, God, you will answer me because I've done really well reading my Bible. Or like, God, you will answer me because I am better than those who are against me. Or God, you will answer me because I really need it at this moment. He says, God, you will answer me, O God of my righteousness. Your answer is predicated upon your mercy. And isn't that beautiful? God, you will answer me because you have been merciful to me. You've adopted me into your family. You've made me to be your son. And because you are the God of my righteousness, you will answer me. Okay? That's the first thing David does. But the second thing, the second thing it's predicated upon, you see it there in the middle of verse 1, you have given me relief when I was in distress. And that's a past tense phrase, not a present tense. So David's not saying, you will give me relief and I am in distress, though he is. He says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. David's bold asking of God is predicated upon God's past faithfulness. And isn't that beautiful? We, we can't forget that in, in the scriptures, God's character is always synonymous with the things that he does, okay? So God will say, you're to worship me for I'm the God who has saved you. I'm the God who has brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who has made you a people and given you a land. I'm the God who has redeemed you. Right? David says, I boldly ask you, Lord God, because you're the one who in the past has been faithful. 
You have answered me when I was in distress. Okay? And so David cries out with this boldness predicated upon the mercy and faithfulness of God. And he says at the end of that verse, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Now here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to turn your attention from the psalm for a second, and I want, to, want you to look inward at your own heart, just for a second, okay? And I want to ask you this question. When you have experienced wrongdoing, when people have sinned against you in the past or the present, let me ask you, what is your default response, okay? What's your knee-jerk reaction? What's the thing that you typically automatically revert to? I've been asking that question the last two weeks. I'm trying to survey and get a feeling for what is the general uh, response that most people have, and the responses are kind of all over the map. I assumed at the beginning that most people were like me, and they weren't, okay? And, you know, that is a helpful reminder. My sinful first response, okay, when people do wrongdoing against me is to immediately do wrongdoing against them, okay? That's my knee-jerk reaction. I know it's wrong, right, and you fight against the flesh, uh, but that would be like, okay, you're, you're falsely accusing me. I'm going to falsely accuse you, okay? Now, not really, not really, but that's a temptation of the heart, okay? A lot of the people I talked to said, you know, my response, uh, I was talking to the staff actually on Tuesday, and they said, whoa, watch out for Brian. You know, he's got this uh, aggressive response to, uh, where people sin against him. Uh, not really, but that's a tendency of the heart. A lot of people I surveyed say, you know, my my reaction is to withdraw. It's like, okay, they've sinned against me. I don't know how to deal with this. So I'm just going to act like it doesn't exist. And maybe that leads to a sort of melancholy response of depression and anxiety. It's like, okay, they've really sinned against me. I have no idea how to deal with this, so I'm just going to let it linger. And not a good response either. Some people said, I just surround myself with a lot of people who love me, and they tell me, that's not true. Don't believe them. And that comforts me, okay? So we have, we have all of these tendencies, these automatic responses when people sin against us that we almost immediately go to. But let me ask you a question then. How would our lives be radically changed if this was our first response, okay? How, how would our thinking and the way we live and the way we carry ourselves, how would it be radically changed if when somebody sinned against us in a very severe harmful, hurtful way, how would our lives be changed if we first said, God, answer me. Be gracious to me and hear my plea. For you are the God of my righteousness. You've been faithful to me in my distress. Be gracious to me, O Lord. How would our lives be changed? You think about those moments, that moment when somebody sinned against you and your chest starts to get tight and you feel anxious and you're like, how's this going to go? And you begin to think about all the scenarios in your mind and I'm not sure I'm going to deal with this and how do I confront them and now what's next and I don't know what to do here. I'm I'm feeling the, the anxiety and the tension. What would happen if at that moment you said, Lord God, hear me. God of my righteousness, you've been faithful to me in my distress before be gracious to me and hear my prayer. It would drastically alter the way we live. Do you know why it would do that? I, I tell my children this all the time, and they typically laugh at me, but I say to them, when they're, when they're struggling with pride or arrogance or anger and some sort of emotion or thought, I tell them, I say, say to your feelings and say to your heart and say to your mind, mind, submit yourself to the truth of God. And they're like, Dad, we don't talk to our minds like that. We don't and I'm like, say to your anger, anger, 
Submit yourself to the truth of God. Like, Dad, the anger does not respond, okay? It's not a living being. It's just a thing. But you see what that does? The reality of that is we are telling ourselves to submit our thoughts and our feelings and our actions and the things that are going in our hearts and the anxiety and the things we experience. We're saying submit those things to the truth of the everlasting God. And the truth of the matter is that, that God controls all things. Nothing happens apart from his p- plans and permission. And so when we're confronted with wrongdoing against ourselves, we need to bring our hearts and emotions in conformity with the word of God and the will of God. That's what David does here first. He, he calls upon God and he says, God, respond to me. Hear me and meet me where I am. The second thing that David does is, I wrote this in your bulletin, I I said, I'm going to put, he goes all in on the truth. In your bulletin, I said he doubles down on the truth, and then I realized last night that that's a blackjack phrase, and if you don't play blackjack, you have no idea what I mean, okay? So what I mean is, David goes all in on the truth, okay? He is completely invested in the truth, committed to it, married to it, loyal to it to the truth. And we begin to see that as he responds to these men. So I don't know if you're aware of this as we read, but the psalm, the first verse and the last two verses are addressed to God. The middle part of the verse is addressed to these men. And I, I think it's too strong maybe to call them enemies. David doesn't call them enemies, though he often calls people his enemies. He calls his enemies his enemies. But I would call them his detractors. They are those who have sinned against him. They may be his friends or family. They may not be. We don't know. But he turns to address them in verse 2. And look at what he says, beginning in verse 2. Amen. How long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? In that second part of verse 2, the Hebrew words are rich and kasav. They're very strong Hebrew words. Uh, Literally, the verse would read, how long would you love or how long would you be in love with delusions of worthlessness and how long would you seek, and it's like a treasure map or a seeking after, a longing for, how long would you intently look for lies, okay? And so those are the two words that are used in the end of verse two, and you see what David is saying is you are wrong. And you have intentionally pursued delusions and falsehood, and I'm calling you out on it. And anyone who had any inclination of integrity would be deeply offended by David's words in verse 2. But he goes on. In verse 3, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. And you can hear the subtle implication in verse 3. David says, God hears me when I call. The subtle implication is, does God hear you when you call? The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. That poses the question for you, doesn't it? And he continues, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. You see verse 4 and 5, they're saying to David's detractors, they're saying, listen, you should think for a while about the things that you're saying. You should ponder the things that you're doing. You should contemplate. 
you should pause and ask yourself a question, is what you're doing a good thing? Because God hears me when I pray. I am His. He cares for me. And if you pursue falsehood and delusion and worthlessness against me, you should think twice, okay? And and David now brings into the equation the judgment of the living God. He is saying to those who have lined up against him with false accusation, you really should consider what you're doing at this moment. And I love that. David is all in or invested in the truth. He doesn't shy away from it. And let me tell you why I think that's important, okay? There is a sort of idea today, if you think about peacemaking or resolving conflict, There's an idea today where the only way to resolve conflict is if we both kind of just say, okay, I'm wrong, you're wrong. Um, And if we do that, then we have peace and we move forward, okay? And that, I would call that a false peace, okay? Like we enter into a conversation and one party is, you know, obviously wronged the other, but we say, you know what, okay, I know I haven't wronged you, I know that, but I'm going to say that I'm wrong and maybe that moves you to say that you're wrong, even though you are wrong, okay? And then we have peace. That's kind of like the model for peacemaking in many circles today. And I was thinking about this. I thought, you know, this is actually kind of the way we sometimes talk to our children, okay, about resolving conflict. Um, if you've ever worked in the nursery, you know this. And if you work in the nursery, first of all, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for working in the nursery. Uh, it is a very important ministry and for all you who are saying, I'm, not, I'm just not gifted to work in the nursery. You're all gifted to work in the nursery, okay? You just need to be present, and that's it. You just need to be present, okay, with children. But if you've ever worked in the nursery, you know this is how a conflict in the nursery kind of looks, okay? You turn your back, and then there's two kids crying. You're like, what just happened? And you kind of grab the two kids and say, okay, what just happened? It's like, he hit me, or she pulled my hair. He yelled at me. You're like, okay, I'm not sure what exactly happened, but here's what we're going to do. You're both going to apologize to each other, you're going to make up, and we're going to move on, right? And that's okay, because what that's doing is, it is teaching us as young people that all of us has sin in our heart, right? Uh, Sins of omission and commission, things we do, things we don't do, uh, things we're not even aware of, ways we offend others, and that's all well and good, right? But if that's the only paradigm that we carry forward into adulthood, what happens is it diminishes the nature of sin, Okay? And it kind of equates all sin. It's like, okay, well, I'm wrong, you're wrong, we're all wrong, let's just not talk about sin. It, it, it doesn't address the issue. And I, I tell you something, I, I think as Christians, we should be exposing wrongdoing. That's part of the role of Christians in this world. It's a biblical responsibility. I'm thankful that David doesn't do that kind of peacemaking in Psalm 4. I'm thankful that we don't get to verse 2 and David says, okay, you know, I know you said these mean things about me, but maybe you're right, I don't know. And so I'm wrong, you're wrong, let's just move forward. That's not what David does, okay? He's all in, he's invested in the truth, doubles down on completely into what is true and and calling it out, okay? And And I love that about David. You have pursued worthlessness. You have loved and sought out lies and falsehood and God hears me when I pray and you better be careful at the things that you're doing as Christians in this world we ought to be committed to married to falling in love with the truth and we ought to pursue it at all costs even when it's uncomfortable and I tell you when there's wrongdoing involved it's always uncomfortable to pursue the truth there's never a time when somebody sins against you and it severely affects you and you say well I just love this okay I love 
calling, it is what it is, you know? I love going to somebody and saying, hey, you have wronged me, and here's how you've done it, and I just need to tell you, that's never comfortable. But we ought to be committed to that because exposing sin is the pathway to leading to gospel resolution. Gospel hope and gospel conflict resolution, okay? I love that David does that in this psalm. We ought also to be committed to that, to the pursuit of the truth, to be invested, deeply invested in what is genuinely, truly true. Third thing that David does here, last thing we see him do is, he rests in God's response, okay? He rests in God's response. Look at the end of the passage Now, everything you have in your mind about what's going on in the life of David, look at what he says beginning in verse 6b. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when the grain and their wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety." Did you hear the two words that David uses to describe what's going on in his heart at this moment? Two words he used. First word in verse 7, the second word in verse 8. In verse 7, he says, you have given me more joy in my heart. So write that down, joy. You have given me more joy in my heart than they have when they have much wine and food. More joy than having a big festival, okay? Verse 8, you have given me peace that I might both lie down and sleep. I think that's what verse 8 says, okay? Peace is the second word. Now, you just have to, at this moment, you have to say, really? Really? Is, is, is that honestly where you're at at this moment, David? People have sinned against you. They have falsely accused you. They have turned your honor into shame. They're arrayed or lined up against you. And you can say at the end of this psalm, I have joy in my heart and peace that I can lie down and sleep. Really? It's like, wow. How does that happen? How does David get there? It's been happening through the psalm, whether you realize it or not. There's a movement from beginning to end. But where the psalm ends, I want to illustrate this point with a a really quick story, okay? In 2018, we bought a brand new Volkswagen Atlas. It was the the nicest car we'd ever bought, okay? And it was special because we, we listened to what Dave Ramsey said. We saved up our money. And we bought ourselves a car. Man, we were excited about this. Like, first time, beautiful new car. We're, and we were jazzed about it. We bought this new car, 2018, Volkswagen Atlas. And we got it, as I said, nicest car we'd ever bought. And, and it turned out to be the worst car we ever bought, okay? In the first six months, it was in the shop for like two months of the first six months, okay? And everything that could go wrong with it went wrong with it. Brand new car, but... Uh, one of the funny stories, we're, we're like a few weeks in, and we're turning on the air conditioning. We're like, I don't feel like there's anything coming out. Do you feel anything coming out of the vents? And like, the kids are in the back, like, no, there's nothing coming out of my vent. There's no air coming out. So we took it back to the shop, and they worked on it, and they get back to us like a week later, and they say, you know what we found? When the car was being built, they didn't put the ductwork in. And we're like, what do you mean the ductwork? Like, I thought that robots put together cars. Like, they just take it off the assembly line, and they put it into the car. How did the robot miss the ductwork? How does that even happen, okay? So we, we go through this process where this car is, is just terrible. And we get to the six-month mark. We're like, this, there's no way we're going to keep this car for the next 10 years. And so we go back to Volkswagen, and we, we told them, like, you need to give us a new car. This is obviously a piece of junk. Something went wrong with it. 
um, you need to give us a new car. And we, as you often find in those circumstances, we start talking with people and we're just getting the runaround, right? The person who sold it to you is like, sorry, this, you know, we can help you as much as we can, but it's over my head. Can't do anything about it, you know? Um, so then we go up to like the manager and the manager's like, you know, sorry, like, you know, uh, we, can, we can fix it. We can try to fix it, but that's the best we can do. And, and you get on the phone with people and eventually my wife says, you know what? We're going to take care of this problem, okay? She says, I'm going to write a letter to Volkswagen, like corporate Volkswagen. And, uh, and she was tenacious in this. She wrote this letter, it was like a five-page letter. And she began to explain, first of all, all the problems. She, she documented them. And then she went into explaining the laws of Virginia and the lemon laws and uh, what we're entitled to. And then she ended it by saying, and we demand a new car, right? And in my mind, I, I, I don't think this is the case, but I, I imagined it arriving to the CEO of Volkswagen. And... Uh, <laughs> That's what it felt like, because just a few short days later, we got a phone call, and they, uh, Volkswagen, some very important person at Volkswagen said, hey, we got your letter, read your story, we're going to replace your vehicle. And they, they're like, we're going to do you one better, we're going to upgrade you, and we're going to give you an even better vehicle. And so they gave us an even nicer Volkswagen Atlas, which was great, okay? But you think about this, okay? This is, this is a picture, a representation of what's going on in Psalm 4. What we needed was not only someone who would listen to us, but someone who had the power and the will and the authority to do something about it, right? Okay? Someone who wasn't going to say, hey, that's over my head. Somebody who could say, hey, if, if I wanted to, I could, I could change this for you right now, right? I got the power and the authority to do that. When David gets to the end of Psalm 4, this is why he says, I have joy in my heart. And I have peace to both lie down and sleep at night, okay? Because David realizes that the appeal that he makes is to the CEO of the universe, okay? It is the one who controls all things. And what has been happening thus far in the life of David is that people and things and circumstances have been working against him. But David is sitting there saying, hey, none of you have, has any power over my life, okay? You have no authority. You may work day and night to ruin my image and my reputation, but it is God who brings the plans to fruition or not to fruition. It is God who ultimately says, yes, this will ruin your reputation, or no, it will not. God may use all their slander and negativity and wrongdoing. He may use it to multiply the image of David, to lift him up before men. Ultimately, David is saying, my joy and my peace are in you, O Lord God, because you're the one who controls the outcome. You're the one who has ordained my days. You're the one who will give me or will take away my reputation, who will make me to stand or kneel before men, who will give me health or sickness, who will bless me and who will give or who will take away. You are the God who controls all that, and I simply submit myself to you. For you're the God who loves me, and you're the God who hears me when I pray. This psalm is a testimony to the invincible security and certainty which amid the marvelous experience of the grace of God's comfort defies all enmity and defamation. And I would say to you this morning that there are times in all of our lives, right, every human being will experience circumstances like this where at the end of our day we need to sit and read a psalm 
like Psalm 4. To remind us that our God hears and he answers us. He hears and he answers us. This psalm is medicine for the soul and it moves us. I'm not sure if you realize this, but the psalm moves from lament to confidence. It's a psalm of lament and confidence. It begins lamenting, it ends with great confidence. It is a psalm of confidence. And lest we also forget that this hearing and this answering of God, this relationship that we have is through His Son, Jesus Christ. As John Bunyan so aptly put it, prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart to God through Christ. Through Christ must needs be added or else it must be questioned whether it's prayer at all. Christ is the way through whom the soul may be admitted to God and without whom it is impossible that so much as one of our desires would come to the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. And so let us never forget that it is through Christ our Lord and Savior that we have access to the Father who hears and who surely answers us, His children, His beloved, the people of His own possession, the ones for whom He sent His Son. Let us never forget that our God answers us. We're reminded from Psalm 4, we'll be reminded as we celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a minute. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you, our God, and we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and we thank you that you hear us as we pray. And we ask that you would be at work in our hearts even now. We know not what tomorrow holds or the next day or the next year. We, we know not what wrongdoing and offense we will experience, but we know that it is inevitable in this world. For we're reminded, as you've said, if the world hates you, remember it, it hated me first. And we're reminded that while sin remains, so does all the effects of sin. And so we ask, Lord God, when we are confronted in those moments where our tendencies are, are naturally towards a, a sinful inclination, may we be reminded first and foremost, Lord, to come to you and to cry out to you, answer me, oh my God, the God of my righteousness, for you've been faithful and loyal in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. And Lord, help us to rest in the response that you give us. For you're a good God who loves us. And you cause us to have joy in our hearts and peace in our innermost being. Lord God, give us that peace. And give us that joy. That we might rest in you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In your name we ask all of these things. Amen.